This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil examine Kevin McCarthy's ouster as House Speaker. Whether it's better to ignore or amplify Donald Trump's most dangerous and controversial speech, how invading Mexico went from a bad idea to Republican doctrine, and then close with a return to one of our favorite segments, Phil's Campaign Corner. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. We're back after a week off, and I think we're as good as ever, right? That little week, you know, it gives us extra energy. That is true, but at the same time, I'm looking at you like reclined in a recliner with your foot up because (laughs) you somehow managed to injure yourself while teaching today. Is that the case? I I did. It's quite embarrassing, actually. I was uh, we were showing I was showing a documentary on China, and we were watching like 10 minute clips of it, and then I would go down to the front of the uh, front of the room, and we talk about it, then go back up. And so one of the times I was walking down. I missed a step and fell and sprained my ankle, which is about as graceful as it gets. Um, and and the student seems somewhat troubled by it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's you know it's uh, maybe I'm entering this age where I, I, these things are going to start happening. Where I'm going to injure. How do you injure yourself during a class? I know. Well, while watching a documentary, you you weren't even like <laughs> doing right. like active active learning in any way. <laughs> I have to add stairs to the things that I worry about now. So you are, but I will say they were tricky stairs. You know, it was a sort of an amphitheater kind of classroom and the stairs angled a little bit. And um, so, you know, it, it, it's easy for a guy to miss a stair like that. I'm sure that's all true, Bill. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you are of the so. age now that that uh, you are in the demographic where falling becomes one of the biggest health risks for you, right? This is true. Uh, my old neighbor, uh, who was an ER doc, used to say, like, the most dangerous thing I could do is get on a ladder. He's like, I see guys <laughs> like you all the time who've fallen off ladders. So he's like, you and ladders, you should probably just go different directions. So you're better off paying a guy to go up on a ladder. Well, you're, it, it seems like other than than some some minor spraining, you're you're OK. That's oh, you know, it's just I, I there's not I wouldn't let an injury prevent me from podcasting. You know, some of these athletes, they get, you know, a little bit of a hamstring. Not me. I, it doesn't matter. I could I can be injured. We're still podcasting. <laughs> Uh, Well, but we got a lot to talk about today. Before we dive into it, you want to remind everybody how they can uh, stay connected with us on the podcast. Yeah. So our webpage is thepoliticslab.com and you can go there and find all the relevant information about us and about the podcast. So we have uh, on on each episode, we have an episode page where you can find articles related to the topics for that week. And that's true again this week. We have an article from The Atlantic on Kevin McCarthy. We've got a couple of interesting, I think really interesting pieces on, um, on Donald Trump and his rhetoric. So all of that is, uh, you can find along with our social media, um, links and all of that stuff at thepoliticslab.com. Well, Phil, the rumor is that there are two people that are leading in contention for the speaker. One is Donald Trump and the other is you. So this is probably a perfect time to transition and talk about whether we're going to be talking about Speaker Barker soon. I I would do a real bang up job at that. (laughs) You would get all those Republicans in line, right? They would just follow you. 
I am just a born leader. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's been a, a bit chaotic in the house this week. Um, I, you know, Bill, you and I were talking just a couple of days ago about like when the vote. And it, so it, anyway, we it, was, it felt like things developed so quickly. You know, as the government approached this potential shutdown, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy grew increasingly frustrated with the far right members of his party who refused to compromise in any way on their demands to dramatically cut government spending. And McCarthy eventually moved forward a compromise that drew support from Democrats, and it also drew the ire of hardliners in the Republican Party. Um, the the spending resolution passed, um, and and this is where you and I were having conversations about like maybe this is maybe there's limits to the sort of yeah. insanity or the obstinance of the of the Republican Party, um, and then in short order another vote was called by Matt Gates, um, and that was a vote to remove McCarthy from the speakership, and that vote also passed, and it brought an end to McCarthy's term as Speaker of the House. Um, the first time that's ever happened, right? That this is that a speaker's ever been removed through this process. So th this, of course, raises all sorts of questions, like what comes next? Who will the next speaker be? Um, was McCarthy's frustration evidence that there are limits, even within the Republican Party, to the obstructionism of its most fervent members, or? Does McCarthy's downfall mean that the zealots have won? Uh, how will McCarthy's tenure be remembered? That's so many angles to this. So, so let's <laughs> dig in, Bill. You're a big fan of Kevin McCarthy. You, you really, you know, admire his virtue and his character. So how are you feeling about the house today? You know, the one thing I really do like about Kevin McCarthy is his haircut. I think it's a pretty solid haircut for a guy his age. You know, he keeps it kind of high and tight. It's, I, I like that. I think he dresses pretty snazzy for a speaker. Uh, but that's probably that's about it. Now, in some ways, this is the inevitable outcome of what we've witnessed in the Republican Party over the last five, ten years, maybe even a little bit further back. I and mean, we could talk about John Boehner and Paul Ryan, you know, previous Republican uh, speakers of the House. And we were seeing these dynamics develop. And this is sort of the culmination of, of the radicalization of the Republican Party and in particular elements of that Republican Party. Where it's no longer about governing. It's no longer about really solving problems. It's about these uh, performative acts of uh, loyalty to to the new right, I would say. It's no longer even about being a Republican or being a conservative. It's this new sense of, you know, the new right, the new Republican view. Um, and it's, 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 it's really, really dangerous. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, is carrying out an impeachment inquiry, you know, a clearly illegitimate impeachment inquiry of the president because the right flank wants that um that isn't enough you know it's, there's nothing that is going to sort of satiate this group uh and he did one thing which was you know pass a short-term budget so the government doesn't shut down and that's it he's out uh, um you know I, I, it is extraordinary times and i think it's really a it's a metric for understanding the way in which the the Republican Party has moved and the radical elements within it, where even sort of moderate voices uh, can't control the party anymore. So it's it, it, maybe let's start there. What was what was your initial impression of this as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the 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 telling part is the is I think the extent to which working with Democrats is in and of itself like an irredeemable yeah. feature among a big chunk of of America or uh, uh, certainly of the Republican Party. So it, yeah, I mean. I think you're exactly right, whether it's going back to Paul Ryan or, or Boehner or even Newt Gingrich, right? It was this, yes. it, it's been this very long history of um, essentially Republican obstructionism. And, it, and it's, it is, um, 
it, it felt like it was a part of the party, but it feels like it's kind of taken over the party at this point. And, yeah. and, um, I mean, it, it, it is perfectly in line with so much that we've talked about in terms of it's not just I mean, it is partisanship, but it's a specific type of partisanship. It goes back to what we've talked about where, um, you know, th this evolution in American politics where people uh, particularly, you know, in this case, in the Republican Party who see Democrats not as people with different ideas, but as people who are you know, evil, right. That they have some yeah. sort of agenda to destroy America. And so it's when you get to that point that working with them is in fact, you know, inconceivable. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's the culmination of, of that. Um, and that's, that's interesting, not, right? Yeah. Uh, just cause I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it's the, any kind of compromise, with the other is dangerous, but this is also revealing that there's no room for debate within the party itself yeah. either, right? It's, you know, if you are willing to compromise, you are, are are essentially as bad as the other, right? So it's, even if you're a Republican, working with the Democrat lops you in that, that group. So there's really no room for any sort of dissension if you're not in agreement with this sort of new right perspective. Yeah, I mean, Kevin McCarthy gave on everything, right? Like he had he had caved to essentially every demand of the far right, and this, like you said, this one thing was not enough. So it's it's this, it's like this weird purity test. It doesn't matter how you know what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what your sort of ideological history is. All that matters is are you loyal, right? It's this weird loyalty yeah. test, and that, that's. Um, it's uh, it's disturbing and it's not it's certainly not a good model for governance, right? Where where yeah. it is this sort of all or nothing and no compromise because what was, you know, the, the the spending bill that was put forward actually was sort of a nice compromise in that it was short term. It didn't give like the sort of spending that uh, Democrats wanted for Ukraine. But it was, you know, it, it was, again, what happens when you have a divided country and you find this yeah. sort of in between where we can agree on it. So it's the sort of thing that should be praised. And instead, it's it's the downfall of of, you know, of him as as the leader. So, I, yeah, it's it's a strange place. You and I are old enough to remember during election season, candidates would run, even if they were, you know, liberal or conservative, as bipartisan, right? They would yep. talk about reaching across the aisle. And that was seen as a good thing, right? That you were willing to work with the other side. But this new crop or, of, of Republicans, Gates and others, and I think it's it's probably a little more pervasive than we think within the Republican Party, um, that, that's gone, right? Uh, and this is a classic example of that, where any kind of cooperation, any kind of movement toward the other side is is not rewarded um it's yeah it's 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 really dangerous when that is the case yeah it's, it wasn't just i mean in the the old model was not just that it was a positive if you were willing to it was it was like a positive that you could like you wanted to show yeah. a history of that because the whole idea is like i'm working for you and i'm able to get even people on the other side to you know through my negotiating tactics to make sure that i can get the policy proposals done and that's Again, it's not about policy or governing anymore. It's about, you know, identity and and loyalty and and all that sort of stuff. What so uh, let me ask you this cuz there's yeah, there's yeah. a weird there's a weird twist to this which is the majority, the vast majority of Republicans were fine with Kevin McCarthy continuing on. So I mean, it really is this group of like eight, you know, Republicans who have essentially in it and it is again because the Republican majority is so small, this handful of Republican hardliners can essentially hold the whole government hostage. And we had talked about this, you know, back when this was the setup, that this was gonna cause problems and give disproportionate power to these uh sort of hardliners. 
are, is it encouraging that only it's only eight or is this like, I mean, it's where I have a hard time sort of wrapping yeah. my head around just how far has this kind of, you know, loyalty test kind of metastasized within the party. Is it that most people are still reasonable, even, you know, by today's standards at least, and it's just a handful or is this like there were a lot who could vote reasonable because they knew that Kevin McCarthy was going to be ousted and so they didn't have to, you know, put their, their, uh, I don't know, their hardline stance on, uh, you know, out in public? It's an interesting question, right? And I think we, I think it's a very low bar, right? So the the yeah. moderates are the ones that simply voted to to keep the government running for forty five days. Um, I I think there there's that group of eight or so, the most extreme, that are essentially just nihilist, right? I mean, their their position right now is they want to blow everything up. And I think even Republicans in the House were noting this. You know, Kevin McCarthy said they they just want to see the place burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the most extreme version of the Republican Party. But I think. This is this is infiltrated large segments of them, right? So there's just it's a matter of degree between them, um, because Kevin McCarthy and what the Republicans have been doing is not moderate. It's not bipartisan. Um, you know, it's still been pursuing a largely mega agenda in the House, uh, but maybe for some, just not far enough. Uh, and that's really stunning that you can't control a group like that. That where Kevin McCarthy is basically ceding everything to this group. But that still wasn't enough. I mean, think about Nancy Pelosi, who basically had the same margins. Uh, you never saw anything out of this. And so it raises the question is, you know, was Nancy Pelosi just that much better of a leader uh, than Kevin McCarthy? Or is there something about the Republican Party more chaotic, more explosive, more nihilistic? And I think I think probably both of them. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy probably was not as good of a leader. And it's this is a much more difficult group uh, to corral together. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I, I you know. I still think there. this is something that's permeated lots of the Republican Party, but we're seeing the most egregious aspects of it in these in these eight. What do, what do you think? Is this is this a broader problem? Is it just is it a handful of bad apples that are ruining it for everybody else? I, I think the answer is sort of yes and no, I think. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it is sort of a group of, of bad apples, but it, it, at the same time, like Kevin McCarthy allowed them to do, like this is where we go back yes. to, you know, talking yes. about the importance of the party. Like the whole idea that I, I was very briefly encouraged when Kevin McCarthy basically told them, you know, go, you know, screw yourself, right? Like if, you're, right. if you want to bring me down, if you want to vote me out, then vote me out. But this is the right thing to do. And that's the thing the party should have done, Yeah, you know, 10 years ago at the beginning of the of the whole Trump movement. Um, and, I mean, even before that. Right. But uh, but they, they haven't been willing to do that. And so I think it is um, a, a like a small ish faction that is like hardcore believers in this. But it's the 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 larger party itself that has chosen to go along with it and not sort yeah. of push back at all for fear of losing power. I, now, I mean, what the question then becomes, like, is this and this is where I, I kind of think, like, you know, if we could fast forward a year or two, is that who is this a victory for? Because, again, there's right. part of me that says, like, it's a pretty big deal when Kevin McCarthy comes out and basically says, I've had enough, right? We're going to, we're going to govern. I'm done with this nonsense. Um, but he did, you know, he did get voted out, right? So I, there's a chance that they emerge as the victors within even, you know, the hardliners with an even more, you know, stronger control over the party. Yeah. Or it could be the chance that, you know, the rest of the party is like, we're, you know, they, these, you know, eight, 
have not only like they're they are basically holding the rest of us hostage and we're done with that. And so I it'll be interesting to see sort of how the party reacts to this because this is not going to be an easy solution, right? Gates no. has like thrown the party and house into chaos just as we're heading into election season and you got to figure that most Republicans are aren't just annoyed by this. Like this is uh, you know a really uh, this you know I people I don't think liked Matt Gates to begin with, but especially now, <laughs> right? right? Well, okay. So here's the question for you. Do you think this, the next speaker is likely to be more moderate? Like, will those factions in the Republican party say enough of this, right? Uh, We want somebody who can let us pursue our agenda so that we can get reelected because your electoral chances go down with chaos like this. Or is it more likely to drift more towards the radical element you know, thinking more towards Matt Gates? What what do you, we don't know yet. It's very early in the process. Who's going to emerge as, as the next speaker. But if you were thinking, is it going to drift toward moderation or towards extremism? I mean, I think it could go either way. I mean, I guess this yeah. is where, you know, I've been teaching about, I was just grading exams about norms, right? And the idea of that when we're talking about norms changing, like norms can change for good, they can also change for bad. And this is seems like yeah. one of those deciding points in which, you know, who is chosen as the next speaker might have a really big impact on which direction we go. And I mean, I think there's an opportunity here where the, you know, and, and I think this is where conventional wisdom and reality might, might clash a little bit because I think the conventional wisdom amongst Republicans this day and age is like, you can't, you can't work. I mean, the lesson you could take from this is you can't work with Democrats or you're going to be punished. But I don't know that that's actually true. I feel like there's a whole lot of voters out there who would in fact reward people for, you know, being more effective in their governance. And so, you know, there could be some sort of, this could be a moment where they find some compromise, some speaker who's like a moderate Democrat or a moderate Republican who gets votes from both sides. And that could sort of change the narrative about how we move forward in politics. I, I don't, I haven't seen in the Republican party in the last eight years, any sign that that's going to be the lesson that they draw here. Right. right? right. But I think the, 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 the great thing about this particular moment is it doesn't take the whole party. Like it could take just a handful of Republicans who are willing to sort of reach across the aisle, um, and, and set us on a slightly different path. But I, I don't know. That doesn't seem, it seems what's more likely is they're going to find some other person who takes a deal sort of like McCarthy, who can, try to appease both factions of the Republican party, probably unsuccessfully and probably for a short period of time. I think that's probably the more likely scenario, right? I mean, I I imagine there used to be individuals who could do what you suggested, you know, reach across party lines and make. You see this in your you're talking about comparative politics. You see yeah. this all the time in in Europe, where uh, a consensus emerges, where they say, okay, we can pull somebody from the left and the center, and this is a, a governing coalition. That's not happening in the Republican Party anymore, and and anybody who would even propose to do so would quickly be removed, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing, and if they haven't already been removed. Right. I mean, I think there's already a self-selection situation where there are fewer and fewer Republicans in the House uh, who are open to that. And then the interesting question is also the Democrats. Do the Democrats bear any responsibility for not trying to reach across the line? Kevin McCarthy was blaming Democrats, saying that they could have they could have stopped this. And um, I I understand that sentiment. I also think it was unlikely to expect uh, Democrats to come in and save this Republican dumpster fire. But it's an interesting, interesting question about do Democrats 
Democrats bear some responsibility for this. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you what you thought of that, whether whether Democrats should have bailed him out because, you know, you give you keep him again, you could potentially sideline the naysayers and keep him in power. Yeah. But this is back to where Kevin McCarthy didn't it's a little too little too late, right? Yeah. Like when he's he's been unwilling to stand up to them up to this point to the extent that he's launching impeachment inquiries and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. He's like caved on so many other things to expect yeah. the, and, and has demonized Democrats on so many things that to expect them to come to his aid is is uh, maybe asking a, a bit too much. But I, I don't know. I mean, if, if it if you took all the party labels off of it, if you step back from it and think about like what's good for democracy, would it right. have been the right thing to do for democracy? I, I don't know about that. that. That's hard. It's hard because you don't know yet. Yeah, right. I mean, would. Would Kevin, if, if, if Democrats could have gotten some concessions on governance, maybe it would have been worthwhile, right? If you can get him to say, all right, we're going to work this way on budgets and you're going to give us a little more power sharing so we can cut some of the shenanigans down, then it might have been. But it doesn't sound like that was on the table. And I also think there, uh, there were a lot of Democratic members of the House who genuinely just couldn't stomach working with McCarthy, yeah. given all he's done. Sean Caston, a Democrat from, from around Naperville, who we've had on the show, was posting. He said, I, in good conscience, I can't work with somebody who has not been honest uh, in his dealings, who is impeaching a president yeah. for purely partisan reasons. He said, I, you know, I can't of good conscience make that vote. And I think there were a number of Democrats in that position, which I guess makes it easy, right? So yeah. the leader should come out and say, no, we're not, we're not going to save Republicans from themselves. But, but you're, you're right. There's there's a bit of responsibility there, depending on what happens over the next few months. Well, is that the open? Because you're right. Kevin McCarthy is not just some everyday politician, right? I mean, he was sort of a Trump lapdog and all sorts of other yeah. stuff, like oversaw some really terrible things. So, But it, it is the right thing to do for Democrats to reach across the aisle if the right Republican is a candidate, right? You find somebody who has yeah. been, I, you know, I don't know who that would be, but a Republican who you don't agree with on policy, but is firmly in support of democracy and has spoken out yeah. against Trump, you, you find a way to to move them into the speaker role because that's the right thing to do for democracy. No, I, I could see that. I don't know who that candidate would yeah. be, but I could see that. <laughs> right. Or at least if that candidate emerged, then I think there'd be more pressure on the on the Democrats to say, let's make this work. We're going to pass budgets. We're going to, I mean, do the, again, the, the minimum level of yep. congressional responsibility in terms of yep. keeping the government open, stuff like that, I think. Um, I think we're past the point of actually having meaningful legislation because, you know, that, that group of eight or nine, they don't want legislation, right? That's the whole right. point. Their, their approach to governance is to gum things up. And so, um, yeah, I would love to see a consensus candidate and I would love to see the Democrats work with it. I just think it's it's long odds. Well, that's back to the I know we need to move on, but that's back to this yeah. the original question of whether it's isolated to these eight or if, whether it's spread to the whole party. And ultimately, these eight would not have the power they have if the rest of the party didn't see working with Democrats as yeah. an awful thing. Right. There, there shouldn't right. be you know, of all the people in the house, it shouldn't be hard to find some sort of common ground to govern. Um, and, and the fact that these eight are able to hold the rest of the Republican party essentially hostage is because, um, for whatever reason, either voters or the Republican party has decided that, that there is no acceptable way to actually, you know, work with, talk to negotiate with Democrats. Yeah. It's, it's a sign of how weak the party is, yeah. that the party can't regulate. I mean, we again, go back to comparative politics. You can talk about strong and weak parties, and the Republican Party is an, is an example where Donald Trump dictates things and individual members dictates, and, and the, the party is unwilling or unable uh, to control its members, and that, that, that makes it hard to govern.
And it's a coalition that after 50 years in power, essentially is, is like strained at the seams, right? Like you have totally, you have white nationalists and you have pro-business Republicans and you have sort of libertarian Republicans and they can't agree on anything, right? They have fundamental different, different ideas about what government should look like. It's it's hard to see how the Republican Party comes back from all of this, but yeah. all right. Well, it's, well, we're going to continue this theme, and and again, our listeners will detect a theme across the, all the topics in this episode, uh, trying to understand the process by which a political party or a political movement becomes radicalized, how extreme voices within a party can seize control and then do what you want to make it happen, right? Uh, so this has been an ongoing challenge when it comes to Donald Trump. Do you cover or ignore the dangerous and radical rhetoric he uses? Uh, and this last week even by Donald Trump's standards, was a doozy. On Friday, uh, Donald Trump gave a a chillingly dark uh, speech where he pledged to get tough on crime by shooting shoplifters. Specifically, Phil, he said, quote, we will immediate stop all the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you're leaving the store, unquote. Shot. That's one of the core pillars of democracy, right? When we're talking about what makes a country democratic. Yeah, instant, I'm pretty sure that execution was execution is one of them. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, that was somewhere in the Declaration of All Independence. Right. I kind of remember that. Right. So, uh, Trump also uh, revealed his plans for fighting forest fires, which involved watering the forest so that the ground would be wet and not catch on fire. That's cutting edge stuff. Um, earlier in the week, Trump attacked the former chairman, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, staff Mark Milley, writing on social me- mil- uh, media that Milley's phone call to China during the January 6th chaos, quote, was so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death, death in all caps, unquote. Now, all this extraordinary language prompted Brian Class, who we've talked about in the past and is a political scientist at the University College in London, uh, to engage the question of whether we, but really more the media, should ignore Trump or instead amplify the danger of his rhetoric. Uh, He comes down firmly on the side of amplification and critiques the false hope of those who pretend to ignore him. He asks the question of how is it possible that the leading candidate to become president of the United States can float the prospect of executing a general and the media response is crickets. Uh, He talks about the banality of crazy and calls on the press to convey the magnitude of the threat Trump poses, not just the novelty of his antics. Along those same lines, there was an excellent editorial this week by David French, uh, who was asking the question of when the Trump fever will break. Specifically, when can we expect that his most extreme and devoted followers will finally move on? When will this this sort of cult expire? And French concludes in a really powerful explanation that it's not going to break. So, Phil, these two articles raise the question of, of, you know, how should we deal with extremist candidates and their followers? So just tell the people, what's the right answer? (laughs) This question I find fascinating, and it's one that I really wrestle with all like all today in the lead up to this to recording. I've I've sort of thought about, um, you know, what the right answer is. And I I find I find um, Brian Kloss's article argument, which we have posted on the website, really fascinating. I mean, he makes a really compelling case that essentially the media has quit covering Trump, that the lesson learned from the last go around was like, don't pay any attention to him. Um, yeah. And 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 we are effectively ignoring him. 
which means that just like most people aren't like fully aware of just how like the, the Donald Trump of today is different than the Donald Trump of four years ago, right? That he's like all in on the, the, the sort of authoritarian rhetoric and whatnot. I mean, we saw he was pretty all in on it before, but it's even now it's at a, at <laughs> yes. a sort of different level. Um, but it's not getting talked about. And, and, um, I, 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 I really go back and forth because I think, you know, he's right in that we should be made aware of the sort of stuff that he's talking about. This is major news, but yeah. there is also the lesson of the last time in which we had essentially Trump had, you know, nonstop 24 hour coverage. Um, and that certainly wasn't the solution either. I think about, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm initially, com, you know, compelled by his argument that we should be talking about this. But then when I zoom out and I think about it in a larger context, I think of all the times that that just, just exposure is problematic or dangerous for a message, whether that is, yeah. you know, I, whether you're looking at, you know, Rwanda and the lead up to the genocide and just sure. having those voices of essentially, uh, you know, hate and aggression out there contribute to this. And so I think what he's not necessarily taking into account is the extent to which the words he's saying seem crazy to a lot of us. But in the world we live in, to go back to David French's argument, where like supporting Donald Trump is essentially an act of faith. Yeah. then then those words have power for sort of another segment of society, which is more likely to sort of radicalize them, push them to take, you know, uh, violent action. And so um, I don't know. I mean, I think the solution I come to is that there's, and, and I think this is what Brian Kloss would argue too, is that there is something in the middle, which is you don't just give airtime or coverage to the stuff Donald Trump says, you have to contextualize it. So it, it requires the media to do the hard thing, which is to say, maybe, I mean, maybe it shouldn't be that hard, but it's been hard for them to do, which is to say, Donald Trump said this, and here's why that's dangerous, or here's why yeah, that is yeah. so, so different or concerning. It's more than just, you know, providing it as these are opposite viewpoints and everybody has a chance to talk in the public sphere. It's more than, you know, just hiding it. It, it is exposing it in a specific way. But even then, there's part of me that thinks like ostracizing it is is uh, pretend, potentially the better way to go. I, I, I really do go back and forth because I, I see. Uh, there's danger in both uh, in both approaches. I think. What, what do you What do you think? I, I'm like you. I'm torn on this. Uh, I think if you could fully cut his megaphone, that's that would be the right choice, right? I mean, because you're right. We can think about these other examples where populist demagogues use the megaphone to incite violence, right? There's a clear pattern here. The problem in the United States is that you have a handful of networks cutting his microphone, but he still has a, a huge microphone, right? I mean, he's right. still on social media. He's still on Fox News. He's still, he is still connecting with the audience in a really, really dangerous way. Um, and if that's going to happen, then I wonder what is the point of not talking about it on CNN or MSNBC? I mean, those networks, right? It's, it's sort of a partial cut. Some of the media has cut him off, but other Others are fully embracing him. And I get why the media does it. It's an impossible position. Uh, it requires them to take a side and not necessarily a partisan side, but a side against an authoritarian. The media has to come down and say we are pro-democracy. Yeah. Um, and the American public isn't really savvy enough to make that distinction. So I, I think the media bears some responsibility. The fact that the American public is just such a, a dum-dums, right? I think we also bear responsibility that we've got no civic education. We're not aware of right what is right in front of our face, right? You know, the media, I think, has done a decent job of trying to expose Trump. Uh, 
but we're not really paying attention and listening to it. So, so I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I tend to think like you and I, part of our reason for doing this pop uh, this podcast is to explain that right so we're out there ringing the bells and and arguing that it's a really dangerous uh situation to be in and then i think well the media should probably be doing the same yeah. thing as well but i get it's harder for them right because they're a business and you know the minute you do that you instantly lose credibility as being non-biased so it's yeah i like you i'm torn but there, I mean, there has to be some, I, yeah, I, I think about like you, your example of, of us doing this leads me to think about like, how do I approach Donald Trump in the classroom? And, yeah. and I, I try to talk about it and this is probably how the media should do it. Right. Like I, I will talk about Donald Trump is a populist and I, you know, will get my students on board with that. Like he fits yeah. the definition of populism and, you know, he has these authoritarian tendencies and the idea is you can support those authoritarian tendencies, right. But you need to accept that that's what yes. they are. Yes. And here yes. are the implications of those. And so it's not me telling you that, you know, what you should believe it is laying out the consequence, what we know about, like, this yeah. is, this is not, you know, this is not a political attack. This is what we know about authoritarians and authoritarian rhetoric. And we know how this plays out. And if you're okay That's with that, point. fine. Um, and it's not fine, but you know, <laughs> right, like, this right. is at the, least admitted. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this is, so I was on, I did the radio last week. And so we were, I usually went on the radio. We, we talk a lot about democracy and uh, we took callers, which is always fun when the radio takes callers. Yeah. So I had been talking about democracy and basically making the argument that you and I often do about, you know, how democracies die, the ways in which Donald Trump is embracing authoritarianism, building off political science research, right? Really grounding the argument there. Then a caller called up and said, it's, it's, I'm really terrified that this political scientist is teaching his party as an opinion in the classroom. Yep. Um, and and I, to the hosts, she let the person make the point and then she threw it back to me and she said, is that true? And I, I got to make the argument about, you know, we ground ourselves in an academic discipline, right? We ground ourselves in scholarship. Um, and when you do so, you're able to see clear right and wrong in terms of pro-democracy and anti-democracy. The question is whether the media can do something like that, where they, I mean, I think maybe we should. I mean, should we, we should expect them to, to, to try harder, right? To know that there is a, a right answer here and that we should feel comfortable talking about Trump in the classroom that way because that's what a good political scientist should do. And that the media, if they care about democracy and the democratic experiment, should also try to do that in their own unique way. Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the 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 fruit of a of a long campaign by Republicans to sort of plaster the media as partisan. The media has had a hard time sort of figuring out how to, to deal with that. But it's also yeah. back to again. I think this is a this is a challenge that is more easily under you know taken on if it's taken on at the beginning, right? So, I mean, this is yes. it, 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 it's easy to point to the media, but it's the blame should be with the media, with voters, with the Republican Party, with all sorts yes. of people here. Because, you know, if the response at the beginning had been, this is inappropriate, and it, the media should be pointing that out, but the Republican Party should have been pointing it out as well. Yes. The problem yes. is we're so far down this road now that we've, you know, Trump has done this great job of, of essentially framing things so that anyone who disagrees with me is out to get me. And so, you know, now even in, you know, as much as you might try to frame your conversation with data and research and whatever, it doesn't matter because if the data and the research is against Donald Trump, then it is partisan, right? So it, it is, it is yeah. the great way in which this has been framed. It's the brilliant aspect of, you know, oftentimes authoritarians, right? That, that, um, you know, my, 
that well, that's Donald Trump says, right? Only only I can fix this. It's this cult of personality. Well, and that's really fat. And it connects back to our first topic, right? So in the first topic, we talked about Republicans who are afraid of working in a bipartisan way. Now you're seeing the media, which is also on some level afraid, because if they do engage in honest media coverage, calling an authoritarian an authoritarian and highlighting the the anti-democratic elements of the Republican Party, then they are portrayed as, as being biased, right? So you've got a lot of actors, vital actors in the political system who are afraid because of what's, you know, what's developed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the the. I mean, the the appropriate solution. I mean, the appropriate solution is, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I suppose I think um, there should be conversations about this, right? Like there needs yeah. to be engagement around why this is authoritarian or why this, you know these fundamental principles of democracy are important. Um, and that would you know push me back towards Brian Kloss's argument that we should be covering this and talking about it, but. But, uh, you know, that's the difference between highlighting the insane stuff that Trump is saying and trying to educate about the danger of the insane stuff that Trump is saying. Speaking of which, maybe that's a perfect transition into uh, the Trump argument about launching missiles into Mexico. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So back in 2020, Donald Trump apparently began advocating for the use of military force against Mexican drug cartels without the consent of the Mexican government. Um, our listeners probably remember this. It was, you know, a sort of a blip in speaking of the banality of, of what was it? The banality of crazy, right? Like there's so many things that happen that, that any one of which should be sort of a historically insane thing when you're overloaded with them all, it just starts to feel normal in some way. And this is sort of a good example. Um, When this idea was first reported, it was rightfully mocked by many, including Trump's own military advisors and Bill and me, because it turns out that ignoring the sovereignty of one of your top trade partners and launching missiles into their territory is a bad idea. Or it tends to be a bad idea, at least. (laughs) Um, But what was once a ludicrous and fringe idea has now taken root in the Republican Party. Most Republican candidates for president now endorse some version of this plan to use military force against drug cartels in Mexico, whether that be a naval blockade, special ops forces, a barrage of missiles. And Republicans in Congress have actually begun drafting an authorization of the use of force against them, much like the one that was used post-September 11th. Mexico, for its part, is not surprisingly, they're not thrilled by this new Republican pet project. Um... Bill, as as I thought about this today, and as I was uh, you know reading about it, it feels like there's really kind of two levels to this story. It, it, on one hand, there are very real arguments in international relations and international law and ethics about the rights of a state to use force outside of its territory in response to security threats. So, you know, again, if if there are terrorists operating from another country and that country's not willing to do anything about it, there are these arguments that we have the right to do it. And so there are real, you know, intellectual and ethical debates that that sort of apply to this. But um, and, and also, the, you know, there's there's little doubt that the drug cartels, they're not great actors in the international uh, scene. But but all of that, you know, on the other hand, that's not the conversation that Republicans yeah. seem to be having. In fact, this feels like a pretty good encapsulation of the transformation that has happened to the party throughout. It, it's no longer focused on small government. This is a party of like vengeance and sort of might makes right. And so so let's dig in. I, do you want to talk about the nuances of foreign security <laughs> threats? Do you want to talk about the bluntness of the Republican Party talking points? Where do you want to go with this? 
Well, I, I, maybe we can come back to this idea of, of the actual, the real conversation we could be having about how you deal with cart- cartels, right? Because the United States has a long history, as you noted, especially in counterterrorism efforts, of, of violating a state's sovereignty to bomb or blow up bad guys, right? So that has happened. But that's not the conversation that Donald Trump and the Republican parties are having. I think that conversation really is about how a bad, dumb idea can become orthodoxy within a party. And that's, that, to me, is very fascinating because you're right when trump first came out with this uh you know he was uh it was sort of hilarious how he how little he understood about it at all right i mean so apparently it wasn't even the military that introduced this to him it was somebody from what some health it was like the undersecretary of some health yeah but who happened to be wearing a military uniform i think yeah (laughs) yes so this guy is telling trump about this and because he was wearing a uniform trump assumes it's the military uh, some sort of of military advice and i think that is revealing and i think it was correctly mocked because he was just talking about launching missiles and blowing cartels and there's all sorts of bad ideas or bad reasons for for i mean reasons for not doing such something like that um but the idea sticks around and trump keeps bringing it up and keeps bringing it up and when you have a cult of personality and somebody who can just dominate the airwaves and the discourse, what happens is the rest of the Trump-loving party and candidates come to say, no, this is really a good idea. And that's what we've seen, where in the Republican primary, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy and others uh, are now talking about this as this is what we should be doing. You know, violating the, the border, the U.S.-Mexican border, violating the sovereignty of Mexico to pursue, you know, the bad hombres, as Trump called them in Mexico. I mean, it's it's stunning that you can see a situation where a, just a, a, an imbecilic idea suddenly becomes orthodoxy because some guy who's orange says it's a good idea, right? But I think I, I just am stunned that that can happen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many elements to this that I I think back to things we've talked about on this podcast over the years and and so many things we've talked about that sort of tie into this. And I I think about um, the the uh, we talked about a a good while back about Republican storytelling and how they're better at telling stories than and, and this is an example of like a simplistic sort of black and white story of they're the bad guys and what do you do to bad guys you kill them right this is this is the and and yeah. there's no like understanding of the complexity or the nuance of a policy issue and and that is the nature of governing is that they don't you, you can't take sort of blunt hammer you know simple say answers to complex policy issues they, they sound good. They're appealing because they're simple, but the reality is like, there's no discussion of the, you know, the massive demand for drugs in the United States. This isn't going down the road of like considering legalization of drugs and what that might do to undermine. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't deal with, you know, the, the complexities of, you know, Mexican politics and why these cartels are, you know, having a, why the Mexican government's having, it doesn't, this is not about providing aid to the Mexican government. Like none of those solutions no. are or thrown all out the there. guns. Guns in the United States that that uh, are uh, smuggled across the border to to arm all these cartels. Yep. yep. So we don't want we we don't want uh, complex solutions to complex problems. We want simple and easy solutions. And yeah. and we also love the idea of using force to to get what we want. Right. This is one <laughs> yes. of the, the the downsides of an American foreign policy that has been allowed for you know because we've been so powerful. Largely, we just you know we use force to to do what we need to or want to. It, it's interesting to see the Republican Party and the Trump wing of the Republican Party that was so outspoken against the use of 
force in, you know, the Middle East to turn around and go for sort of this simplistic approach to this as well. So, I mean, I think there's that part of it. There's the white nationalism part of this. Like there's, you know, again, if the drugs were being provided by Canadians, I feel like this would probably look a little different. That's Um, right. It's because it's all tied up in immigration and the board. I mean, the, the commercials here in New Hampshire for the Republican primary are like apocalyptic, like doom visions of, I mean, it is about immigrants are coming to kill us. And I mean, it is, it's like amazing. And these are, you know, it it is, it is, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, but it's, um, uh, Nikki Haley, right. It's like people that, that know better as well, who have sort of gone down this fear-based approach. And, and again, when you create a, a problem or an enemy, that is again, simple. The simple answer is they're bad. Then what do you do in all the movies? When somebody is evil, the only solution is to kill them. Right. And that's, that's where we are. Right. That's the the simple solution. Which sort of begs the question of what is the real motivation of those who are putting this out there? Is it really about addressing the problem of, of of the, you know, the, the drugs and, and all of that, the cartels and the, or is it something else? And I think you're hitting on it's something else, right? So it is this identity politics. It is this clash of civilization type of narrative that you're seeing out of Trump and others in the Republican party uh, and, and threatening to kill the other, right? When you've clearly identified who the other is, right? So it's, 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 it's a foreigner. It's, it's somebody of color, right? You need to prevent them from coming here and going after and killing them. It's, it's really no different different than some of the sort of the anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric that you saw in the aftermath of 9-11, right? It's the same sort of thing. And it's not really about addressing the problem. It's right. about performative actions that make you, it's clear that you're on the right side of this identity politics and identity war. And that, boy, that's just real dangerous. It is. And I think, you, you know, this, this idea of like, why is this happening? It feels like there's this cycle in which I feel like we've had this for a while now, you've had Republican elites who have been willing to tell the simple fear-based story because it motivates yeah. voters, even though they don't plan to actually follow through on it. I can go out and say this, people get fired up and they vote for me. The problem is <coughs> they've been doing that for so long that now all the all the supporters believe it. And what we're starting to see is that they're electing the true believers now into office. So this feels like, I, I still want to say, this is like nonsense. This is just a talking point. Nothing like this will ever happen. But the longer we go through this cycle, the more like I think, you know, Ramaswamy, if he were elected, would I think he means it like he would 100 percent do this uh, if given the choice. And and again, in American foreign policy, the president can kind of do whatever they want. Like we have these informal checks that the military can put in place. But it, it is we are gambling as we, you know, with with these sorts of ideas. It's it's really insane to see how quickly a, sort of a, a bizarre thought can become you know, uh, part of the the Republican platform, essentially. You're hitting on something really interesting here, right? Where the, the transformation of an idea, and I think I think it works with this this example where you say, you know, this is a sort of a dumb idea of Trump that becomes orthodoxy, but you also see it in, in the new right and the far right uh, with things that are sort of racist, but are uh, it's intended to be funny, right? So oftentimes you'll see hateful racist rhetoric on the right, and then the excuse is, it's funny. Don't you get it? You're, you're, we're just joking. We don't really mean it. We're, you know, all of this. But then as time goes by, it's not 
a joke anymore, right? You have people who then buy into that ideology, right? And there's the danger of that. You start out there and you're saying like, oh, I don't really believe this. I'm just joking about this. And this is just what we do online. And of course, we're not really going to bomb Mexico. But as time goes by, no, people believe that. And then yep. you get a, a candidate like Ramaswamy says, no, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to bomb Mexico. And then also, you know, all of that hate rhetoric out there, I actually believe that. It's not just a joke anymore. It's meaningful. Yep. And that transformation, I don't think is, I don't think enough attention has been devoted to how all of these dangerous, hateful, and in some ways just like stupid ideas have become mainstreamed because we've been talking about them long enough and they get enough circulation in those those uh, right-wing networks. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about that. Well, and to go back to like Levitsky and Zablat and the re- you know, research on democracy where they talk about the importance of parties, this is where, again, if the party as a whole from the beginning had stood up and said, this is this is crazy, right? Like this is not yeah. actually what we're going to do. Um, but it's like, we, we've let it go long enough that now it's, if you say that that becomes a political liability and yeah, it's just sort of snowballed, uh, out of control, I think. But I, I like to believe, you know, we talk in, um, in IR about the dialectic and the thesis and antithesis, right? That, that, that through history, uh, the battle of ideas, a better idea emerges. But I think what we've seen in the Trump era is that not always, right? If you repeat a bad idea over and over and over again, sometimes people buy into the bad idea that, you know, there's not enough out there, you know, sort of... Uh, to curb some of these really, really, really stupid ideas. So, so uh, speaking uh, of, before we, before we shift gears, yeah. uh, speaking of like stupid ideas, I mean, let's scrape away all the other stuff around it. And at the heart of the yeah. issue here, is there a point ever at which like U S foreign policy, U S security interests would dictate that the use of force in Mexico, even though it's an ally is appropriate. Like what's the, what's the kernel of truth at the center of this? Uh, or is there one? I think it's, if you're talking about a close ally, it's really, really difficult, right? So yeah. this has happened in, in Pakistan, right? Where the United States has violated Pakistan airspace uh, and sovereign orders to go after, uh, you know, Al Qaeda. And, but Pakistan was always angry about it, but that's, it was one thing because it was the war on terror. You know, they were not a close ally at that moment. Uh, Mexico's different. Think about all the trade between the United States and Mexico yeah. and uh, violating that is an act of war, and even if the United States says we're just going after the bad guys, they're still Mexican citizens. Uh, you're still engaging in war against. I mean, it, it is. It, there's, there's no way around it. It's an act of war. It's an act of aggression. Um, I don't know how you do that against somebody that you're allied with unless they're on board, right? If Mexico says, okay, we want your support in this, I just can't see any way you do it um, unless there was like some sort of immediate national security threat. Yep. That's, I think, the only thing. What do you, I mean, is, is, is this even possible? No, I think, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think, yes, there is, there are moments in which, you know, a, a country for its own security violates the sovereignty of another country. But this situation is so far removed from that, that it's hard to, I mean, again, you have to remember the long history of the U S yes. meddling and using force in Mexico and in other Latin American countries. I, this, this is a, an example of if you went down this road, like everybody's going to be on Mexico, everybody in the international yes. community is going to oh, be yeah. on Mexico's side, not on the U S side. This is, 
even if you were successful in it, this is a classic example of like blowback, how this is going to, you know, have ramifications. This is where it's not that you shouldn't want to battle the cartels, but the way you do that in a normal circumstance is by working with the Mexican government to strengthen their, you know, ability to take on those cartels. And that's the, where you're never going to see Republicans endorsing, giving, you know, money and training to the, the Mexican government to carry these things out. Um, and so that's, that's where the, the serious, of this becomes or, or the lack of seriousness becomes yeah. clear like the, the actual difficult things it would take to take this I mean even if you did use missiles to blow up the cartels, the Americans love their drugs and some other cartel yeah. is going to arise to fill that gap, right? There's no right. actual attempt to take on the core problem here. Um, it's just this like might makes right approach, this simple, simple take. So yeah, I mean, I think, yes, there are moments where that becomes, uh, you know, a possibility, but this doesn't see, I can't see any way that this is one of them. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. Americans do love their drugs, right? That's yeah. this is a this is a supply and demand problem here. So I know. All right. So for, so for our final topic, we're bringing back one of our all time favorite segments called Phil's Campaign Corner. As many of you know, every four years, presidential candidates make their way to New Hampshire to make the case for why they should become president. It's a wonderful, longstanding tradition in American politics. What you likely did not know is that all of these candidates inevitably make their way to Keene, New Hampshire, and specifically to Keene State College, where our very own Phil Barker gets to spend some time with them and often formally introduce them at their campaign events. That means you, our listeners, get an inside look at the presidential campaigns. Uh, and this week, Marianne uh, Williamson, who was running against Joe Biden and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the Democratic Party primary, came to town. So, Phil, before we get into the, the visit of Williamson, why don't you start by talking a bit about the New Hampshire primary process, what it all looks like, and then, then we can talk about yesterday's visit and, and what we should take away from that. Yeah. So, I mean, some listeners, especially people who, who, you know, listened on the last podcast as well, have heard me talk about how, you know, as an outsider, I'm not from New Hampshire originally, um, moving to New Hampshire. Like I knew that this was the place that, you know, all of that kind of, you know, primary retail politics stuff happened. Um, but seeing it play out has been really remarkable. I mean, the, the, the extent to which like, um, uh, you know, a candidate has to be able to, I mean, I guess let me let me start by saying at these events like New Hampshire, people from New Hampshire take these events seriously. And so sometimes they are really large events, but oftentimes they're a small room yesterday. Uh, the was yesterday day before yesterday when Marion Williamson was here. There were probably 30 people in the room, so they're not always large groups, but they come with questions. They ask hard questions. They ask difficult questions. They push the the candidates in, in a way that has been really impressive to me and, mm -hmm. and in a way that I really understand the value of something like what happens in the New Hampshire primary, which is candidates. If you're going to, you know, you have to not only be able to respond directly to questions um, effectively, but you have to be able to manage an organization like what four years ago, it was really fascinating to see the difference between the different democratic campaigns and how they were organized and how they were run and the attitudes they had. And it really told you a lot about the candidates. And so you get this real inside look. And so, you know, there's a whole debate about whether New Hampshire should be first in the nation or not. And you and I have talked about that and I feel torn on it because I think someone needs to play the role that New Hampshire does. But I also recognize that New Hampshire does not look like much of the rest of America. And so it's pretty uh, white, Phil. Yeah, it's pretty white, pretty old, pretty rural. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, it's it's not necessarily a, a great cross section. But 
um, having said that, I, I, I see the real value in these kind of small events and, and, you know, a candidate's ability to interact with people, to put in long hours to manage an organization are all skills that are necessary if you actually want to be, um, uh, president. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how this plays yeah. out. One of the really interesting things is that, um, I think this wasn't always the case, but, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the changes in the Republican party, Republicans seem, uh, decreasingly interested in coming to college campuses. So we, we get lots of Repub uh, lots of democratic candidates on campus. We don't tend to get very many Republicans, even this time around, uh, Chris Christie was in town Friday and he rented the venue across the street from campus rather than on wow. campus. So that's um, telling. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's, a, it's part, probably partly that they know who their audience is. Um, but it's also, you know, I don't know. I think maybe that plays into their rhetoric to some extent as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's really fascinating and hopefully we'll, I'll get, I mean, we don't have as many candidates this time around, but hopefully we'll have, you know, more of this, uh, as we move forward. Um, in terms of Mary, so let's talk, yeah, 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 let's talk a little bit about her. What was yeah. her, what was her campaign event like? So, I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, this is an example of where there was, well, so there was, for instance, uh, some level of miscommunication about the start time of the event. So it was kind of, you know, there was, uh, it was, it was sort of flustering at first and that she, her, she had sent out messages saying that the event began at 3.30 and Keene State said it came out at 4.30 and she handled, I mean, she was, I think, sort of flustered, but she handled it well. Um, the part that I, this was the first time I had seen her in person. She's been to campus a number of times before, but I've always been busy. And so this was the first time, uh, you know, that I got to hear her speak. And I had images in my head of what to expect. You and I have talked about it. I mean, she's been kind yeah. of cast in the, in the, in the news as, I don't know, uh, a little out there or whatever. Eccentric. Yes. Eccentric. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, in general, I was generally really impressed, um, in, in this sense, in, in that she gave a really good stump speech. She highlighted issues that I, that, you know, that I think will resonate with people. Her argument is about, you know, economic inequality. The reason, you know, you look around the rest of the world where they have, uh, paid, um, parental leave and healthcare and, you know, uh, tuition free college and all of this, her whole argument is like, there's no reason why we, the world's largest economy can't have those things as well. Her argument is that we have all of these other examples that we can draw from. If you want to know, how do we take on a policy, uh, uh, issue, look around the world where all sorts of other, you know, major democracies have been able to implement these policies. And so, um, you know, it was, it was the, the message itself was far better than I expected. Um, mm -hmm. the part that I thought was interesting, well, there's two parts that I think are interesting. One of which is it's a very populist message, right? We've talked about populism. We've talked about Donald yeah. Trump as a populist and Bernie Sanders as a populist, but this shows the appeal, I think, on both sides and that she's essentially yeah. saying she even talked a lot about how the Democratic Party is part of the problem. Right. And that it's mm. about, you know, elites and all of this other stuff. So it was very much kind of a there they the elites are out to get you. And I'm here speaking for the the every, you know, every man and woman. And I, I thought that was interesting. It's like a softer form of populism, but it's it's very much the same idea. And I think that's important to recognize that. One, not all populism is necessarily bad, but two, sure. also this populist tendency plays out on, you know, on sort of all both sides of the spectrum. I, I think that was interesting to see that, um, that contrast. And then the other thing is that 
it became clear as, you know, again, because people ask hard questions. Um, people asked her things like, how would you get rid? Cause she says she would not just forgive, um, the student loan debt that Joe Biden was pushing for that she would abolish all student debt. Um, and somebody asked her, how would you do that? Um, and it became clear very quickly that she has lots of ideas, but not much in terms of solution. Like she fell back on like, well, I'm limited in the powers of the president and I sure. would, uh, you know, use the bully pulpit to convince people. And I don't know, it was, it's an interesting contrast to the Joe Biden's of the world who aren't just necessarily telling people what they want to hear because he recognizes the complexity of the issue. Yeah. But he's having to battle against the Donald Trump's and the Marion Williamson's who have this again, very simple view. Those are the bad guys and, and we should fix it. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's part of the, I think part of the reason why politics in America is at this really dysfunctional point is that we all want simple solutions to these really compl complicated, complex problems. It's, it's why populism has, has such broad appeal at this point. So it's interesting. You, you were talking about that uh, Republicans haven't been coming to campus a, yeah. a lot. And I, I, that, that's really extraordinary, right? It reveals a sort of skepticism of, of colleges and universities. I think that's uh, that's concerning in its own way. Uh, have um, Has Biden had much presence there? I mean, I, I it's it's different because he is the incumbent, so he doesn't need to do this. Yeah. But I'm curious, is there are they running ads? Are they are they trying to connect in New Hampshire or or not? Not that I've seen really yeah. at all. Like I haven't seen either. So on ads, there's, there's a ton of Republican ads, lots of people who are running ads, you know, again, particularly Nikki Haley, uh, Chris Christie, um, and DeSantis are the big three for a while. Ramaswamy was running ads. I see less of that, but, but there's a lot of ads on the Republican side, which I guess makes sense. It's a more potentially sure. more competitive situation, but Biden, even last time around, didn't dedicate a lot of time and energy to New Hampshire. I mean, I think he also understood where his strengths were. Um, and New Hampshire is a split state where this purple state, but the, the democratic sort of part of, of New Hampshire is a very sort of Vermont kind of Democrat, right? Mm, which is, yeah. which is less, you know, it's more Bernie and less, less, uh, Joe Biden. And so, um, I think he, he, I think he made one appearance last time and I, I haven't seen much from that, but it, what's interesting is that we do see, um, uh, Robert uh, Kennedy, has students in the, um, in the student center. And so does Ramaswamy. And it's really interesting to see how yeah. they, their campaigns interact with people. Ramaswamy's people are, uh, pretty insane, but, uh, yeah, it's, so it's very much in full <laughs> yeah. swing, but at this point it feels like the, you know, it, it, it has a potential to be a quietish New Hampshire primary season, I think. Well, the, and the other thing to think about there, too, is is while New Hampshire is likely to remain in the beginning for the Republican primary, the Democrats have right. moved on and and uh, New Hampshire hasn't really decided how they're going to handle uh, being the first primary. Yeah. Right. And so there is there's this pull where the Biden Biden is basically saying, you know, you're early, but you're not the number one. And New Hampshire is saying, well, our laws say we have to be number one. Right. And then, you <laughs> right. know, uh, the, the Democrats are going to play hardball and say, OK, then maybe we don't count your delegates. Right. So all of yeah. that is still to be decided, which will be and maybe that explains part of the reason that Biden has been engaging as much. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how that plays out come primary season. Yeah. 
well, this is great. We should wrap up, but this is we will have to come back to Phil's campaign corner because I think there's a lot of really on the ground perspective that when you see these campaigns, it's so different than when you watch things on on the news. Like you, I mean, I remember last time around, you noticed things and were able to see things that um, that you simply can't appreciate when you're only able only watching it through the national news. So I'm, I'm super thrilled that Phil's campaign corner is back. It's really fun, and I'm sure that even if we don't get much uh, in the primary season, once we get to the general election, I would guess that we'll see you know Biden and, and uh, Trump avoided campus last time. I'm sure he would avoid campus again, but uh, um, yeah. maybe we'll have more, you know, proxies that come in and, and do stuff as well. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, maybe on that note, why don't we wrap up, Phil, remind everybody how they can stay connected with us. Yeah. So the, the website's thepoliticslab.com. And again, there's an Atlantic article um, on on the McCarthy stuff. And then the, the couple of articles, the Brian Klaas, Klaas article and the David French article on, on Trump supporters. Um, all of that's available on, you know, there's links available on the website. And, and you can find all of that at thepoliticslab.com. That's fantastic. All right, Phil, I will see you next week. You take care of that ankle, Bill. I'm, I'm icing it as we speak. All right. <laughs> Bye, Bill. Bye. Bye, Bill.